0: There are so many things that can distract us from what really matters. As a people, we've come to a place where the only thing that matters to us is what makes us happy. And I know at some point or another, we've all fallen into that. I definitely know I have. There's a good time of my life to where things got hard soonly after I became a Christian and I ran from God. And during my running from God, I put so many things above him. I put pornography above him and I put basketball above him. I use those things. Instead of turning to God like I should have, I had used those things to medicate the pain that I was going through. And that's what happens to so many of us. And what terrifies me to this day is how many things we have to turn to instead of God. And how many things we do turn to instead of God. How easy it is to fall into idolatry. That's what we're gonna be talking about this morning. And I'm gonna lay a foundation right now. Idolatry, if you're not in Christ, you you are an idolater, not a person who commits idolatry. Because you are in a constant state of putting something else before God. But once you become a Christian, God views idolatry a little bit differently because you're in a committed relationship. And what we're going to see from our text in Jeremiah chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and start turning there. What we're going to see is he views it as spiritual adultery. So as you guys are turning, I'm going to lay a bit of context down so we know what we're going to be reading. So Jeremiah is a book of prophecy given over a 40-year period by the prophet Jeremiah. During his ministry, especially in the early years, God used him to give a strong call to the southern kingdom of Judah to repent and to turn to God because they had fallen into this spiritual adultery. So starting in verse one, he says, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers and would you return to me? So God starts off by asking a question. If man and wife, they come together, they're married for a little while, they get separated And she goes off, becomes another man's wife, and they get separated or that guy dies or whatever. Is it okay for the wife to go back to her first husband? And we hear that and we say, oh, why not? That sounds like a pretty good thing for two people that were separated to come back together. And some of you guys might even be thinking, oh my goodness, it's like some Hallmark movie. You know, it's just (laughs) some fairy tale. But back in that day, for that to happen, that was forbidden. That was a huge no-no. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 4, it says that one is for that to happen. It is an abomination to the Lord. And some of us might still think that's kind of weird for God to make a law that way. But the thought process behind that commandment could have gone something like: God didn't want His people to get married for a little while, and then get bored of each other, then separate, go marry this other person for a little while, and once they get bored, they can come back. He was saying, no, that's not how we're going to do this. You're going to take marriage seriously. He was putting weight on them. He was forcing them to make a commitment for a lifetime to someone else. And you might ask, am I saying that we should bring that law back today? God, you're no, I'm not saying that. <laughs> but I am saying we definitely need to get back in that mindset of marriage because we've lost that as a culture, that sanctity of marriage. And so with that understanding, we can read these verses, how Israel would have received it. So when we read, if a man divorces his wife, and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? We say, of course not. And when we read, would not that land be greatly polluted? We say, yep, yes it would. (laughs) And when we read, finally, you have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me? We say, boys and girls, we've done it now. (laughs) So you see, God is grabbing their attention, saying, you've gone out, and you've around with other gods. You've put other things in front of me and you're just going to come back to me like nothing's happened. He's, no, 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 no. We're going to talk about this. And through the next few verses, that's what he does. He starts addressing them. In verse two, he calls them to look at the idols that they had made all over the hills. In that day and time, if you're going to make a place of worship, they would always put it on the highest mountaintop. And so he tells them, lift up your eyes to bear the heights and see. Where have you not been ravished? And the word ravished there. It means to be taken off by force, to be kidnapped, or to be sexually violated. He's saying, where have you not allowed yourself to be taken advantage of? You're making all these idols, and now they're the ones who are controlling you. You may have started off in control, but now they're taking advantage of you. And it's absolutely everywhere. And he says, by the wayside, you've set a waving... Awaiting lovers, like an Arab in the wilderness, you have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. He's saying it's everywhere. It's not only on the mountaintops anymore. It's everywhere. You've corrupted everything. And because of that, he says, therefore, the showers have been withheld, and the spring rain has not come. God had already started judging his people. He'd already started snapping at them, trying to get their attention. And he was literally holding back water, something that they needed to live. Yet, Israel's heart was not affected by it. It says, yet you have the forehead of a whore, and you refused to be ashamed. So back in that day, unholy women, prostitutes, and other women like that would generally shave their head, and so if you look at them, they would look like they would have a rather large forehead. So everyone knew who these women were, by obviously what they did, but by also their appearance. That's how far Israel was gone at this point. He compared them to having the appearance of a whore. And it gets even worse, because they were at a point where they were, they were refusing to be ashamed. I want you guys to understand something. All sins is the same. All sin is judged the same in, uh, in the sight of God. But each sin has different effects. Let's take pornography for instance. You get into something like that, it isolates you by yourself because of the shame that it brings upon you. Right? You tell a lie, that brings multiplication. Because you tell one, you have to tell others to cover that one up. But idolatry has this almost like camouflage. It shows you the good things about it at first, It usually catches you off guard where you get drawn into it, and you become so infatuated with it, by the time you do see the bad stuff, it doesn't matter. You can kind of think of it like this way. So, let's take a boy. Teenager, he finds this girl with a pretty smile, but has a terrible personality. And when his friends and family tries to tell him, hey, you don't need to be going around, she's nothing but trouble, he goes, no, 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 you don't know her like I do. She's not that kind of a person. What he's really saying is, you don't see that smile like I do. You're not following her in the way that I'm following her. And this is what idolatry does. It brings you to a place, it ensnares you so much, and it brainwashes you to where you believe, that you're doing nothing wrong because you're blinded by love. <clears throat> and so with that understanding that this is what idolatry does to you, verse five, 4 and 5 become kind of clear. Have you not just now called to me? My father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? And God replies, Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. Because of their brainwashing, they'd refuse to be ashamed and they go and talk to God like nothing had happened. After all of the idols that they had made, after all the worship that they had done, they just go before God. Hey, I still love you. You're still my number one guy. And God's saying, you might be saying this to me, but your actions are not following it. You go and you come and you say this to me, but yet you're taking every possibility to sin. Any God that you can put in front of me, that's what you're doing. And guys, there's even people that do that today. There's people who come in here once a week and say, God, I love you. Jesus, you're the love of my life. But then for the rest of the week, they do all the evil that they can. They put anything in front of God that they can. Let's move on to verse six. The Lord said to me in the days of the king, Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all of this, she will return. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. She saw that for all of her adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister, Judah, did not fear, but she too went off and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all of this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. So this was a point in Israel's history where the two southern tribes of Israel and the ten northern tribes had split because of a civil war. The two southern tribes were called the kingdom of Judah, and the ten northern were called the kingdom of Israel. Jeremiah was appointed to the southern tribes, the southern kingdom of Judah. And at this time, Judah was faced with a choice. They had seen all the wickedness of, wickedness of Israel. They would seen all the idolatry, all the worship, all the sin, all the pollution of their land. They had seen God's judgment being poured out. God even gave them a, de- a decree of divorce. And for those of you who don't know what that de- decree of divorce was, nearly 100 years before this, God had used the Assyrians to come and destroy and capture Israel. And you might say, "How, if God's so loving, how could he do that to his chosen people? But I say, if God's so loving, how could he watch his people be ravished, be sexually violated, be taken off by force, be kidnapped by the work of their own hands and not do anything about it? How could he do it? How could he just sit there and watch that if he loves them so much? God wasn't being a bully when he was giving out judgment. I think Jeremiah is very clear. Israel got what was coming to them. So Judah had seen all that. He had seen the judgment of God poured out and he was faced with a choice to turn and to repent or to fall into the same mistake as Israel. And this choice, has, humanity has been faced with it ever since the fall. Adam was faced with it when he watched Eve eat the fruit, and fall into this. The younger generation of Israel was faced with it when they saw their mothers and fathers die in the wilderness. And now here Judah is faced with it. And we're even faced with that choice today. Are we going to follow this nation and even some of the members of the body of Christ already into idolatry and spiritual adultery? No, we may not have idols and places of worship that we go into worship, but we definitely idolize and worship so many things in this nation. For instance, sex. We've gone so far gone with this one that we can legitimately say that we are like the Israelites and we refuse to be ashamed about this. We have such a light view of sex because so many people have gone to the nth degree with it to where it means nothing now. I watched a sermon from Bakum talking about this issue and he made a point that I didn't pay much mind to until I heard him. And so it goes something like this. A biblical view of sex, it is a exclusively arranged for marriage and is the most intimate action that you can commit with another person. It's two people becoming one flesh. Okay, But now, since so many people have idolized it, we've normalized adultery and it plays out into TV shows. Have you ever thought just any TV show that has romance in it, there'll be a couple that will be having sex for weeks, and sometimes even months, but neither of them will know how the other person feels. They'll go to their friends and talk. It's like, then the friends will ask him, oh, have you done it yet? And they'll, yes, we've done it, but I just don't know how he feels because he hasn't told me that he loves me yet. We've elevated three words above what God said is the most intimate thing that you can do with another person. We've completely flipped-flopped it because of idolatry, and we refuse to be ashamed. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 18 says that we are to flee from this. In Proverbs chapter 7, it gives a very poetic picture of a man who's walking down a street and he goes and he falls into this snap of an adulterous woman and it's basically he gives pictures of a calf going into a slaughter this is what it's saying. It's supposed to, we're supposed to flee. We're not supposed to go up and fight against this. We're not supposed to go and fight this temptation. We're supposed to get out of there. But because the church has not fled from it, because we've messed around with it, it's come in and become an idol, and we refuse to be ashamed about it. Another thing that we idolize is politics. There are a lot of Christians today that elevate politics over Scripture. What happens is they become so infatuated with their political beliefs That God's words no longer applies to them because they're believing the right thing. The other person's wrong. We get so headstrong with our political beliefs. I've talked to so many Christians or so many people that say they follow Christ, but yet because of their political beliefs, they completely disregard what Scripture says about certain things. And I'm not just talking about one party or the other specifically. I'm talking about both. Both parties have people that are guilty of this. They hear something When Jesus talks about how we are to love our brother in Christ, like, a new commandment I give to you is that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So they hear this, and then they go get on their computers and start yelling and cussing each other out. And when Christ says our love is supposed to be something that attracts people, that draws him to ourselves, and we'll all say amen to that, but as soon as as someone disagrees with us, that all goes out the window. And it's not only with this circumstance, we don't only just argue with other believers about this, there are even times to where we completely ruin an opportunity to share the gospel because someone disagrees with us. And we sit and we waste time when Colossians chapter four, verse five tells us when we're around non-believers and outsiders, we're supposed to make the best use of time. So we can, by all means, we can go out and argue politics, but we better have the understanding that when we're doing that, we could be the last chance that that person has to hear the gospel. So in the face of that, is changing someone's political view really making the best use of time, when you could be the last chance that person has to hear the gospel? (coughs) There are, again, so many things. That we can idolize, like sex, like politics, sports, social media, ourselves. So many things in this nation. Anything that we think about more than God, anything that we desire more than God, that we spend more time with God becomes an idol. Because we are called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Again, I say we are faced with a choice. Are we going to learn? from others' mistakes, or are we going to make the same mistakes ourselves? Are we going to follow this world, or are we going to repent with our whole heart? This is where Judah messed up. Yes, they repented, but they did it in pretense, not with their whole heart. Are we going to learn from that? Listen to what verses 11 through 14 say. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words to the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you have rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among the foreigners under every green tree, that you have not obeyed my voice. O faithless children, return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Look at this. After all what Israel had done, after they had gone out and played the whore, after they had taken every opportunity to sin and every opportunity to rebel from God, every chance not to listen to his voice, God still calls them back. But he says you have to acknowledge your guilt. You acknowledge that you've made other gods, You acknowledge that you followed them, that you worshiped them, that you allowed them to take advantage of you, that you took every possibility to sin. Acknowledge that. Admit you're broken and come back to your master. Admit that you need me. There are some of us here today that might have realized that we've been living that life, that we've elevated something over God that we've put something in His place, that we've not been obeying His voice, that we've been not listening to the commands of Scripture, and God's calling you back. But you have to acknowledge your guilt. It can't be this pretend repentance where we just go and say, God, we're sorry. Repentance is having a heartbroken remorse over your sin and turning away from those things. We have to lay down the idols that we've been worshiping This is not something that is talked about all that much. But it's something that we need to get back in the mindset of. Because so long we've been in idolatry. This nation has been in idolatry. We've gotten to this thing to where, again, I say we're getting into the mindset of Israel to where we refuse to be ashamed about it because our sin's not that bad. We're not as bad as Israel. We're not as bad as Judah. When I say we're probably worse than what they are now. Colossians 3.5 says that we are to put a death, what is earthly, in us. And so I call you today to come back to your first love, to put away those other things, to put down politics, put down the computer, and come back to your first love. After he calls Israel to repent, he tells them things that he's going to bless them with. He tells them that he's going to give them shepherds, after their own heart that would feed them and give them understanding. He tells them of a day that, the, that Jerusalem is going to be called the throne of God and all the nations are going to gather to it. And this is going to be a place of worship. And in this day, when this day comes, the Ark of the Covenant, it's not going to be even remembered. It's not going to be even thought of. So he goes and he gives them hope. He tells them that they're going to be fruitful and multiplied. So God gives them these blessings if they repent. He gives them these blessings in himself And I want you to understand something. Today, if you are a Christian, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1-4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. How comforting is that? That before the world was even made, before your mama or your daddy even thought of you, (laughs) you were thought of. You were thought of. You were chosen. God's seen all your hurt. He's seen that you would rebel for him. He's seen that you'd commit idolatry and run away from him, but he still thought and chose you. And not only did he choose you, he chose us in him that we should be holy and blameless before him. Like we can go before God like we have no sin. We can go before God with boldness, like in Hebrew says. But wait, how's that possible? Are we not idolaters? Are we not committing spiritual adultery? Are we not sinning again and again and again, taking every chance to commit evil? It's possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. He lived a life that no one else could live. He was tested, he was tempted, and he was tried in every way that we are, but yet the Bible says he was without sin. He lived step by step by step in the will of his Father. He was praying in the garden before the soldiers came and got him. He's saying, God, if there's any other way that this judgment, that this cup could be passed from me, let it be so. But if not, if there's no other way, your will be done, not mine. And see, what amazes me about this, Jesus knew what he was about to go in front of. He knew that not only was he going to be beaten, was he going to be mocked, was he going to be sped on, had a crown of thorns put on his head, be whipped with a cat of nine tails that literally ripped the flesh off of his back, he knew that he was going to take, have to take the full wrath of God. And so after he praises his shoulders, come, and they do all those things to him. But while he was on the cross, Isaiah 53 gives a prophetic view of this, and it says while he was on the cross, God was literally crushing him for what we did. And you have to ask, why would Jesus go through this? Why? He was a perfect, he did not deserve any of this. He could have let us go on to hell. He could have let God fulfill his righteous judgment and let us go to hell. Why did he take it? And that's because he loves you. Not because you're worth it, because you are an idolater. You are a spiritual adulterer. You take every opportunity that you can to sin. I do it too. We all do it. But yet, He loved you enough to make a way to come back to Him. Because without what Jesus did on the cross, there is no returning Israel. There is no returning us. There's no choice to be made because we've already made it. And that's why God can say in these next few verses what He does. In verses 22 and 23, He says, Return, faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. I know there are Christians, probably even here today, that have been running away and are still running away right now. I know it can be easy to do in hard times. And I know it can be easy even to do after you get off this some spiritual high because that happens. We go to camps, we go to youth camp and like all these different things. We go to conferences and we get on these spiritual highs. But as soon as things start slowing down, we start looking for that high in other places. I like to think of it this way. There was a time where my mom bought my nephew a toy car. It was Lightning McQueen and he absolutely loved the movie Cars. And so when he got it, he was so excited because it was one of those cars that you shake up and you lay on the ground and it drives. As soon as he seen it go, he literally went in tears because how much he loved it. But then a few weeks later, I ended up going to his house and he's playing with another toy that he has, and that car was in the bottom of the toy box. So many of us treat God this way. We come to him, and we have these spiritual highs, and we're like, God, I love you. the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. But as soon as things start slowing down, we slowly start picking other stuff up and start putting other things down, and he slowly starts falling lower and lower and lower on our list. If that is you today, if that is you, if you've realized that you've picked something else up other than God and put him down, I beg you, come back, return. God promises to heal you. Let this be, let verse 23 be your response. Jeremiah had a prophetic vision of God's people and here's what they said. It says, behold, we come to you. You are the Lord, our God. Truly the hills are a delusion. They're saying all these other idols that we've made, all these other things that we've worshipped, that we've put in front of you, they fall short. They're not the true living God. You are. It says, truly, in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Guys, Christ Jesus is truly the salvation of his people. Don't go home. Do not leave this place not believing that. Come back. Make him the main focus of your life again. Come back to your first love. And I'm going to give you guys a chance to do that right now. So we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you right now. Lord, and we are broken over our sin. We acknowledge our guilt.